This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. say it Haggai. They're both correct pronunciations. Haggai chapter 2. And it's really been gratifying to hear your testimonies of how this short book has impacted you. It's impacted me as well. Um, Dynamite does come in small packages, but you can only squeeze so many messages out of a two-chapter book. And so... Today, we will finish our journey through uh, the book of of Haggai. Now, in our lesson, we're going to be tackling a very difficult text. Uh, Borrowing a phrase from the baseball world, sometimes a pitcher, maybe like Wade Davis of the Royals, 
as he did on that last pitch that won the World Series, he dug down deep and threw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball and struck out Wilmer Flores looking. And announcers will at times refer to a pitch like that and say, well, Wade Davis brought the heat. Well, today we're going to bring the heat. Uh, this lesson has already hit me, and, and this past Wednesday, just kind of sharing my heart with you, while alone here in the sanctuary, I, I came forward, I already came to the altar, and I just knelt and asked God to help me in the area of the focus of our lesson. And if Haggai doesn't hit you today, then you're either a lot closer to God than I am, or maybe you've developed the skill of prevaricating, which is just a fancy word for lying. Uh, now, before we bring the heat, let me give you one final review that will bring you up to speed. In 587 B.C., the Babylonians under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel that was called Judah, while also crushing the temple, that fabulous temple that King Solomon had built. And this was more than just a physical blow. This was a spiritual blow to God's people. Well, the result was that for five decades, the Jewish people were held in captivity. And you can only imagine the thrill that after 50 years of being held captive, they were finally allowed to go back and rebuild not only their own lives, but also to rebuild God's temple. Well, if you remember in our first message, they started building the foundation. They restored the altar so they could make sacrifices. But then some opposition popped up and they panicked and they quit working on the temple. And their attitude was basically, well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. I mean, if God would have wanted us to rebuild the temple, then, you know, it, it would have been easy. And, 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 you know, the whole project would have just kind of fallen into place and we wouldn't have had this opposition. And we made the application that don't ever, don't ever determine the rightness or the wrongness of a project by how easy or how difficult it is. Just because something doesn't fall into place easily doesn't mean that it's not God's will. And the contrary is true. Just because something falls into place easily doesn't mean that it is God's will. You know, as the Bible says, you need to test the spirits and not just make a decision based on ease or difficulty. Well, after those 14 years, God raised up the prophet Haggai to get them back on track. And, and they again started rebuilding the temple. But in last week's lesson, we saw that after only one month, they again got discouraged. And again, the application here was, sometimes we make commitments. Maybe we begin praying with our family. We make commitments to begin tithing or commitments to begin reading our Bibles or commitments to quit a particular vice or addiction. And we do well for a few weeks. But how many times do we find ourselves slipping back into our old ways? Well, that brings us up to our lesson today. And in this lesson, Haggai is going to bring to the forefront a matter that the people of Israel struggled with. But as I studied this, I realized that it wasn't just a struggle for the, the people of Israel. It's probably just as much a problem for those of us in, in Cedar County or St. Clair County, or Vernon County. Did that get in all of you here?
this is a matter of selective obedience. Now, selective obedience can be summarized like this. We're willing to obey God as long as it's comfortable or convenient. But if God asks us to do something uncomfortable or inconvenient, then what do we do? We pull back from God and do our own thing. Well, before Haggai brings the heat, he tosses a few warm-up pitches by asking some questions. Now, I'm going to warn you, these questions are going to sound a little weird to begin with. But we're going to work through them, and I think you'll see that these are powerful questions, and they're preparing the people for the heat that Haggai is about to bring. Let's pick up our reading, Haggai chapter 2, verse 11. And here are Haggai's warm-up pitches. He asks the priest, New Living Translation, If one of you is carrying a holy sacrifice in his robes, now what in the world does that mean? Let's just stop here. To give you the background, the priests, when they were going to make a sacrifice, they they would have robes that had been consecrated to God. And then what they would take is the holy meat or, or the meat that was a sacrifice, and they would kind of fold it up and wrap it up in their robes to keep the meat from touching anything because it was holy. It was going to be a sacrifice. So let me read it again. If any one of you is carrying a holy sacrifice in his robes and happens to brush against some bread or stew, wine or oil or any other kind of food, will it also become holy? The priest replied, no. So so basically, Haggai is asking the priest, if if your robe carrying a sanctified or holy sacrifice happens to brush up against something that's unholy, does it it, cause it to become holy? In other words, does the holy rub off on the unholy? And the priest said, no, of course not. The holy does not rub off on the unholy. Let me use an example here that I think will make it easier for us to understand this. Let's say that I wash my hands really well with soap and hot water, and I do that for 60 seconds. And then I dry them with a clean paper towel, and then I finish it up by using a generous amount of hand sanitizer, which probably means that my hands are about as clean as they can get. Okay, let's say that with my super clean hands, I touch a dirty plate that has two-day-old spaghetti sauce all over it. I mean, the sauce is everywhere. The middle of the plate, the the, the sides of the plate. So will the act of touching that dirty plate with my clean hands cause that dirty plate to automatically become clean? Of course not. The clean does not rub off onto the dirty Well, let's move on to the next question as Haggai continues with his warm-up pitches. Verse 13, then Haggai asked, but if someone becomes ceremonially unclean by touching a dead person and then brushes against any of the things mentioned, will it be defiled? And the priests answered, yes. Now, let's work through this verse as well. In the previous verse, we saw that touching a dirty plate with clean hands would not make it clean, but now Haggai essentially switches things around and in essence asks, okay, will touching the dirty plate cause those clean hands to become dirty? 
And the priest said, well, yes. The, the dirty plate with spaghetti sauce will contaminate clean hands and make them unclean. Now, I know this is kind of a strange example, but, but Haggai in his warm-up pitches was basically trying to illustrate that sin contaminates whatever it touches. Sin spreads easier than holiness. You know, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, Bad company corrupts good character. He, he didn't say good company cleanses bad character. No, he said bad company corrupts good character. Sin is like that spaghetti sauce. It, it stains, it contaminates everything that it touches. Okay, Haggai is now finished with his warm-up pitches and, and he brings the heat. Verse 14, then Haggai said, that is how it is with this people and this nation, says the Lord. Everything they do and everything they offer is defiled. Now, make sure you catch that. Everything they do, everything they offer is defiled. Now, now honestly, that sounds a bit harsh to me because the, the people of Israel weren't totally bad. They had made some effort to come back to God. They, they were trying hard to do what was right. They weren't totally pagan. They were doing better in some aspects. But God said because they were involved in selective obedience, because they were picking and choosing the areas that they wanted to follow God, God said everything they did, everything they offered was defiled. Their sin contaminated the good that was in their lives. You say, well, Joe, that's Old Testament. Doesn't apply today. Well, this is reinforced in the New Testament. In James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. That's tough. L let me say it this way. Even though we might have gotten rid of 99% of our sin, yet according to God's word, 1% sin in our lives will cause us to be unclean. Let, let that sink in. Maybe I ought to just stop here for a couple minutes. Even though we might have gotten rid of 99% of the sin that was in our lives, but we still allow just a little tiny sin, maybe 1%. God wants us to understand that it contaminates the rest of us and causes us to be unclean. This is serious stuff. And what that means, you know, this, book, this verse in the book of James, he who keeps all the laws except for one, he's as guilty. So let, let's say that there's somebody here. Can, can I just use these two guys here for an illustration? Which one do you want to be good and which one do you want to be bad? Oh, okay, everybody's pointing to Dick to be bad, okay. Uh, but, but let's say that, let, let, let's say that Dick, I mean, he commits every sin in the book and more. He makes, some, makes up some. Let's say that, Gene, he's gotten rid of all of his sin except for one little one. 
which is more guilty? According to this verse, they're the same. He who keeps all of the laws except for one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. And I, I know that goes against the common statement that I've heard so many times. People say, well, pastor, I'm doing so much better. Yeah, I've, got a, I've still got a sin or two in my life, but I'm doing so much better and they're so excited. Well, congratulations. I'm glad you're doing better. But, but don't forget the clear message of the Bible is that one sin will contaminate the rest of the good in us. So better is not enough. I can almost hear some of you grumbling in, in your minds because you're thinking, well, well, Joe, wait a minute. That, that's radical teaching. You, you, you say, well, God is a patient God and he gives us time to work through our issues. And, and that's true. Spiritual growth is a process. You do not reach spiritual maturity overnight. It's a process. However, getting rid of our sin should not be a process. Never in his word do we, do we find where God gives us the permission to kind of grow out of our sin. No, he says, flee your sinful ways. Flee immorality. Don't even let the sun go down on the, uh, you know, on the sin of anger in your heart. Why? Because sin contaminates. Paul asked a powerful question in Romans chapter 6, verse 15. So since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean that we can go on sinning? What does Paul say? Of course not. He didn't say, well, I don't think so. He said, of course not. We're not to continue in sin. So as God's children, he gives us time to grow in grace. Growth, maturity takes a lifetime. But we're not to grow out of our sin. We're to flee our sin. You were rowdy earlier, but you've kind of gotten quiet on me here. No Gatorade for me today, looks like. And In fact, to show how much God puts a premium on getting rid of our sin, Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 23. He said, if you're in church one day, this is kind of just putting a modern-day flavor on it, but if you're in church one day, decide to go up to the altar and pray, but while there, God brings to mind a relationship that's fractured he says leave the altar leave church go find that person and make the relationship right which means to me that if god convicts us of something that's not right in our lives then i believe god is saying you can't really effectively pray at the altar and you can't freely worship god in church as long as there's something that's not right in your life and by the way, not only are there sins of action, but there are also sins of attitude. And I would say that there are far more people guilty of sinful attitudes than sinful actions. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that your son Johnny does something wrong to his sister Sarah, and you say, Johnny, you go apologize. And, and he doesn't want to. And so you say, Johnny, you will apologize or else. And so he stomps up to Sarah and says, sorry. Now, he said the right thing. 
but he had the wrong heart. He had the wrong attitude. And when it comes to God, attitude is everything. God has that ability to look into our hearts and he knows when our attitude is wrong. He knows when we say, well, I've forgiven them, but we really haven't. He knows when we say, oh yeah, I've taken care of that, but we really haven't. He knows when we say, oh, I love God with all my heart, but you really don't. So Haggai is trying to help the people of Israel and also trying to help us understand that sin contaminates every area of our life. That spaghetti sauce stains, that contaminates even what is clean. Well, Haggai turns up the heat a little bit more. And he reminds his people in verse 15. Aren't you glad that we're about through the book of Haggai? So think about this from now on. Consider how things were going for you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Now, if you were here the first week, there was that same phrase. In fact, I believe it's here in the book of Haggai three different times. Consider how things were going for you. And we, we said, well, maybe the modern day translation of that might be, let us know how that works out for you. Let me know how that works out. But, you know, Haggai here in, in the first lesson, he said, you're, you're drinking, but you're still thirsty. You're eating, but you're not full. You're, you're doing everything you can to find meaning in life, but something is still missing. And and, and then he went on and said, it's like you're putting money in your pockets, but they've got holes in them. And, and in summary, and this is uh, according to Joe, <laughs> Joe's translation, summary Haggai was saying, you're working your tail off, but you still can't seem to get ahead. Well, continuing on verse 16, when you hope for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. Can I put this in modern day terminology? You thought you were making good money at $20 an hour, but when your paycheck came back, it was only about half of that. Can anybody relate to that? You wondered where all your money went. And then the last half of that verse says, when you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. Well, then we get to verse 17. And, and I think I better sit down on this one because I, I got a problem with this verse. <laughs> I, I think a lot of us don't like to see God in light of verse 17. Because this offends us. Let me just go ahead and read it for you. God says this. I sent Catch that? I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy all the produce of your labor. God himself is admitting that he sent blight, mildew, and hail to destroy their produce. Question. How can a good and loving God bring hardship, financial hardship, to his people? I mean, if, if God is a loving God, 
I mean, we say he's a loving God. We say God is love. How, why would a loving God do that to his people? Well, this takes us into really tricky theological territory. Uh, Let me see if I can kind of walk us through this for a moment. First of all, there are times when bad things happen and it's the devil's fault. Do you understand that? You know, the devil made me do it. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's a cop-out. Sometimes it's our laziness, our lack of discipline. But sometimes the devil did make us do it. The devil causes bad things to happen. Everybody understand that? You with me so far? Well, secondly, there are those times when bad things happen simply because we live in a sinful, broken world. You really can't blame anybody. It's just a product of a broken, messed up world. Bad things happen. And it wasn't necessarily an attack of Satan. You really just have to say, you know, it's just a product of a broken world. Things break. People get sick. Just a product of a sinful world. But but thirdly, here in this scripture, we get a glimpse of God where, where he is the one. It's not the devil. It's not just a broken world. But God is the one who causes heartache and hardship to come into our lives. Why would a loving God do that? Well, the last part of this verse helps us to understand it better. It says, I sent blight, mildew, hail to destroy all the produce of your labor. Yet even so, you refuse to return to me, says the Lord. This right here is the key that unlocked why, why God caused hard times to come to his people. This was not to punish his people. It was not to zap them. Rather, it was to restore them back to himself. And so God at times causes difficult situations to come. You say, well, pastor, that is so unloving. That is so harsh. That is so unfair. Well, remember that you as a loving parent, you do this with your children. If your child comes to you and says, dad, I need $50 to get a new pair of shoes for basketball. You give him 50 bucks. He says, I've got them. You know, they're at the store. I know what I want. But you find out later on, he bought drugs with that money. What do you do? Well, you certainly don't give him any more cash. Now, are you trying to be mean to him? Is it because you're unloving? Because you don't like him? No, you're, you're simply using that hardship to wake him up and restore him. So, so, so catch that right there. Why is it that, that, that we feel like we can bring hardship to our children because we love them so much and, and we're trying to steer them in the right direction, but when God brings hardship, we say, that is an unloving God, that's a mean God, that's a fair God. I don't want to serve that God. But yet when it comes to our children, we do that. And so God caused financial hardship to come to his people because he loved them so much. He wasn't there to punish them, but he was there to restore them. Well, I love this book of Haggai because God's instructions have been so simple. Have you noticed that? We 
Number one, remember, they quit working on the, on the temple. And God said, get back to work. And do you remember the three steps? He said, go up to the mountain, bring down the timber, rebuild my house. We repeated that half a dozen times or more. Go up the mountain, bring down the timber, rebuild my house. Well, then last week, do you remember simple instructions? Be strong and do the work. Be strong, do the work. Be strong, do the work. Successful people do consistently what normal people do occasionally. Well, for this week, I, I, I wish God would have continued the pattern of simple instructions. I wish you'd have consulted me on this, but he didn't. Yet looking at these last few verses, I, I think we can kind of just accurately summarize them and say this. In a nutshell, holiness doesn't spread, but sin does. And so even if you're doing better in some areas, yet you continue to allow sin to remain in other areas, then the message of Haggai is clear. Your sin will contaminate you through and through. Holiness doesn't spread, but sin does. Well, you ready for some good news? You know, we all like books where they live happily ever after. Well, that's not always life. But here's the beauty of this account. The people of Israel came back to God. And God said in verse 18, says, On this 18th day of December, remember their calendars are probably different than this, but on this 18th day of December, the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, come carefully consider this. And so what does this statement mean? It means they got back to work. Haggai brought the heat. And they obeyed God. And they began working on the temple. And it was not so much, and catch this, it was not so much an issue of building the physical temple, but it was a heart issue. It was a priority issue. You know, not building the temple showed that God was not first in their lives. Well, verse 19, I'm giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. Catch this, this is interesting. Before you've harvested your grain, before the grapevine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have produced their crops... From this day onward, I will bless you. God said, even though the seed is in the barn, even though you, you haven't even planted yet, even though the harvest is se still several months away, yet God says, because you got your heart right with me, you rearranged your priorities, you began to fully obey me, God says, I'm going to bless you. Now, what, what does it mean to have God's blessings? You know, many Christians have a wrong concept of God's blessings. They think, well, God's going to bless me. I'm going to be rich. This old jalopy that, I'm going to that I have is going to become a jaguar. Um, l let me walk us through what, what it really means to have God's blessings. It, it doesn't mean that we won't ever have problems again. It doesn't mean that everything will go our way. In fact, if someone tries to tell you that as a Christian, something good is always going to happen to you, you dismiss that person as a quack. That the Bible says you will have troubles. Not maybe, not perhaps, it says you will have troubles. God's blessings do not guarantee easy times nor financial prosperity. It doesn't mean all honey and no bees. But here's what it means to have God's blessings. Let's continue our reading. Verse 22. We're about to wrap it up. 
I will overthrow royal thrones, destroying the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overturn their chariots and charioteers. The horses will fall. Their riders will kill each other. But when this happens, says the Lord Almighty, I will honor you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. I will treat you like a signet ring on my finger, says the Lord, for I have specially chosen you. I, the Lord Almighty, have spoken. So, do you know what it means to have God's blessings? Well, it means that God's children in a right relationship with Him means that God will fight for us. Did, did you see that there? It says, I'm going to destroy the power of foreign kingdoms. I'm going to overturn their chariots, their charioteers. Having God's blessings means that He is going to come alongside of us and fight for us. You know what that also means? It means that God will comfort us when we go through sorrow. It means that He will provide for our needs. It doesn't mean that we will be rich. But it means that He will take care of us. You know what else? And this is one of the most precious blessings that God can give us. It means that we will have the gift of His presence. Oh, that's the best gift of all, to have God's presence. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because His presence is with us. It means that we don't have to fear life. We don't have to fear tomorrow. It means that we don't have to fear death. Because He walks with us and talks with us and tells us we are His own. I am His and He is mine. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing. I want God's blessings upon my life. I want God to be in my corner, coaching me, fighting for me, working with me. And so this morning as we wrap things up, I let's just go back to the title of, uh, of this message. You got it in your sermon notes, Selective Obedience. And I want to just ask you flat out, is your obedience to God selective? Are you picking and choosing? We love to pick the scriptures. You know that one scripture in Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. We love that. But what about that scripture that tells us to love and forgive and pray for enemies? So how many times do we find ourselves going through God's word and picking, I will follow this scripture, but this one here, not so much. Is your obedience selective and then one more question and I'm finished maybe is there one sin in your life that you're allowing to be there that is contaminating the rest of you sin of action sin of attitude if there is wouldn't this be amazing if this wouldn't be the day that you would just say, God, here it is. I'm, I want to give you this sin too. I want to be clean. I want to be clean. I want, I want.
want God's holiness to rest upon me. And when you do that, there is going to be a peace that passes understanding. I want to ask you to stand here. Would you just be flat out honest? Nobody looking. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody looking. But is there somebody that would say, Pastor, probably my obedience has been selective. Would you just pray for me? Is there anybody that just lift a hand? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand and yours and yours and yours and yours. And Maybe there's someone and we're not going to take a lot of time here. I don't feel led to just push and pull, but maybe there's somebody here that would say, uh, Pastor, I want to come forward and I, I, I just would like to kneel at the altar and, and give everything to God. Today, I am choosing complete obedience. Is there anyone? Just, just a few seconds because we're about ready to pray. Is there anybody you'd like to come and just kneel at the altar? If so, just come. Anybody? You're going to just kneel here. Could we have a couple guys that would gather around this one that's come forward? Just walk him, find out where he is, and walk him to a place of peace. Is there anyone else that would like to just come here? We don't do anything weird. We don't, we don't ask you to confess your sins to us. You don't need to do that. You just confess your sins to Jesus Christ. Anyone else you'd like to pray this morning? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much for, for this lesson. Father, I just ask that, that you would forgive us for those times that we've tried to minimize and just try to be cultural in our salvation and, and uh, just do better. But Lord, the, the, the clear message of your word is, is to flee, flee sin. Lord, for these two that have come together and for those many that raised their hands that have said, I am being selective in my obedience, I pray that, God, you would begin to do a work right now and that they would, where they are, where they are standing, that they would confess that sin and turn away from that sin, repent from that sin, and that they would be transformed as new creatures in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to follow you. Lord, we, we, we want to live lives of holiness that are, that are true blue. We, we don't want to be involved in, in stuff that's wrong. And Lord, we don't want to just say, I'm doing better. But we want to be able to say, because of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb, I am overcoming. So God, I just pray your, your favor. And give your people your blessings. And God, thank you again for speaking to us through the book of Haggai. Continue to walk with us, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask you, you know, there's still people praying here, and if you want to visit, just do so in the foyer. Uh, if you want to come and pray, you're also welcome to join these. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200.
Thank you for listening.